with my co-hosts, Dixie Cochran. Hi! And Matthew Dawkins. Hello! Nello. 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 So, so, um, speaking of Nello, uh, uh, in the <laughs> Why Onyx do you Pathcast think I said channel, it? <laughs> yes, thank you, for Dixie, for prompting me. Um, uh, uh, Ian Watson posted in the Onyx Pathcast channel on Discord, um, and if you're not in the Discord, this is a great place to catch up on these kinds of conversations. Um, it is actually a video about the bugs in uh, Faxanadu. Right. In the Fazanadu. Fazanadu. Or, 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 or Fazanadu, as Matthew Fazanadu, yes. Right. Um, so I started watching the video and like a minute in the font was like readable and I'm like, whoa, 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 hold up. What is this nonsense? Yeah. It actually said hello. Like, like, yeah, the H looked like an H. It was weird. Right. Now, now afterwards they did, uh, uh, uh point out that apparently there was a, a, re- a revised release of the cart. And so they're different fonts. And apparently as soon as you see which font it is, you can tell which revision of the cart it is. So well, they realized, oh, the font yeah. is different. That's not the version I had. As no, a, you had the as original. A child. Yeah, I had to struggle. I had to wade through the blood and the bone to <laughs> to understand what was being said on screen. And damn I had it. never heard of Fazanadu until I started talking to y'all. Like, it, like, like you were the person that introduced me to this, Matthew. Yeah, I'm here. I don't think by any means was it a major release. Uh, it was certainly better than Zelda Two Link. Oh, the Adventures of Link, which it was, I guess, closest to in in form, but it wasn't. Apparently, it's part of a mass a massive franchise. Uh, if you look it up, there's but they're all games called Xanadu, and oh. Far Xanadu was a an experiment, I guess that. I don't know whether it succeeded or failed, but what I I find fascinating about Far Xanadu is how very bleak and gothic and how so unlike traditional monster presentation most of the monsters are in that game uh, if you if people listening look up screenshots or watch an actual play a let's play rather of Farzanadu you'll see some really grotesque stuff for the late 80s really yeah it's um, wow. you know big sort of fleshy sacks hanging off of ceilings with faces screaming in them wow. uh, Con- contra the contra series did similar things oddly despite the fact that's yes. just a run and gun shooty game when you got to the bosses you had hideous monsters that you were supposed to destroy right uh, and that always uh, i guess that drew me in as a child as a young video gamer the more horrific side of things. It made me think, oh, okay, this isn't just uh, the Lion, the Lich, the Lion, the Lich, and the Wardrobe, but that'll be fun. That would be an amazing. Like, yeah. I, has, has that been a title for something? I'm gonna if it hasn't, let's talking. make it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that we'll get sued for that. No, it's all right. C.S. Lewis is dead, and uh, I'm not that unhappy about that. Speaking of things, I can blame Matthew for. Um... <laughs> Wait, I, no, I, I had a video game a- anecdote. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Do that. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> speaking of not knowing uh, Fazanadu, or us us not knowing it, I realized recently, because I was filling out a survey about like the first video games you ever played and stuff, uh-huh. that I have memories that most of my friends don't, and that is because my parents, or my, my grandparents had an Atari when I was a kid. Yes. Um, and I've forgotten exactly which Atari it was. It wasn't the like 2600, the like, most famous one 7800 maybe it was maybe the 7800 yeah and so my earliest video game memories are playing like kaboom and pitfall and yeah. like this dungeon game i had and tanks bowling and a bunch of, 
What? The bowling game. I think that was. A I didn't multi- have a bowling game. Ah, okay. But, oh, that was horrible. But I, I, I had a good like twenty or so games for it, and I, I, I have very vivid like sense memories of playing them. And once I've forgotten which dungeon game it was because there were a few that came out for Atari, but there was one that had levels that were all letters of the alphabet. Hmm. And one time, and like, but of course, it was Atari, so you couldn't like save your game and come back to it, right? right? And once I actually got to level Z, and I was like, "What the fuck's gonna happen now?" I didn't say that because I was like seven, right? Um, but <laughs> you're thinking what, it. But what actually happened was it turned over to level AA, and I was like, "Well, that's stupid," and I got really mad and <laughs> and <'Cause> done. <laughs> I thought I had beaten the game, you know? Like I was, I was a child. I got to the end of the alphabet, and I was like, "Well, that's the end of the alphabet. What what else could happen?" <laughs> There are no other options. <laughs> I was six or seven, all right? No, <laughs> totally. Uh, perfect kid logic. Uh, but no, I played so much Kaboom. I was a big fan of that one um, with, with, with the little, like, twisty paddle. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's so interesting to me because most other people my age, because um, I was born in 85, uh, and a lot of people just miss the Atari. They, they, they went straight to the NES or, you right. know, what, one of the other, like, er- earlier ones. And it's so weird to me that so many of my peers don't have that. So if you're listening to this and you're in the Pathcast channel on our Discord, please talk to me about any Atari games you might have played. Because I played a lot of Atari when I was very young. I didn't get my first uh, like non-Atari system until I was 11. Mm-hmm. was when I got my SNES or my SNES. SNES. Um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with calling it a SNES. Call it what it is. It just sounds like a weird sneeze, like a gross sneeze. It does. <laughs> and I did have Booger Man on the SNES, so that. <laughs> but, but 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 yeah, it's just like, it's like this weird thing. I was so upset. I found out when I was in my twenties. I think that my grandparents had like sold the Atari in a yard sale. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I was like, why didn't you give it to me? I would like it still worked. Don't I you love it. me? <laughs> uh, but yeah, just a totally weird thing. No, I, I think. Well, in fact, I know my very first video game experiences were on the Atari. My parents had one, and I was too young to really appreciate it. My first, my mm-hmm. first console was the NES, and and strangely, I guess the opposite experience of yours was that all of the children that I knew, uh, well, the vast majority of them didn't have any kind of games console or home computer anyway Mm -hmm. in the late 80s or early 90s. It just wasn't a a common thing in the part of England where I lived and maybe or maybe our, I guess, financial bracket, I don't know. Yeah, Um, the the, the only reason I knew I wanted one was because my next-door neighbor had an NES, and he was the only kid I knew that had one when I was, like, five. That's that's the weird thing. All throughout primary school, uh, so up till about the age of 11, I think I was the only boy in the school, that at least I knew, who had a Nintendo that more people had ZX Spectrums and Commodore 64s and other such home Mm. computers uh, where they'd be playing things like Sensible Soccer and, I don't know, uh, Zorp or whatever it's called. Impossible Uh, Missions. Yeah, yeah. And uh, all, all those kinds of games, whereas I had a games console. And it was only when I got to secondary school and... I guess, uh, started meeting a much larger group of people that I started encountering people with Super Nintendos, Mega Drives, or Genesis's, as they were called <laughs> in, in America. And um, Yes, with exactly that many S's. It's, it's yes. Requires more of them. <laughs> it's actually Genesis if it's plural. Genesis. 
I wonder if anyone in the electronics boutique called it. A, um, we have a, a stash of Sega Genesis in our warehouse. What if it was Sega's Genesis, like Attorney's General? <laughs> I actually huh. like that. <laughs> Mega's Drive. But see, I was actually in the boat you're talking about, Matthew, where it's like I had a Commodore 64 and my um, father had the Atari. So when I would go visit him after my mom and dad divorced, I would occasionally play the Atari 2600. So I have some experience with that. Um, and then I had a friend who was like all the way across town, but he had a Genesis. Um, so I, I I was the kid that came over to other people's houses to play game consoles. Yep. Mm. But most of my experience growing up was playing things like Impossible Missions and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and yep. Zork. Um, uh, and they really, really horrible Transformers uh, computer game that came out in 84. Uh, but I mean, so I like, I have zero cultural context or sorry, uh, uh, nostalgic context for the NES or the SNES. Right. Uh, um, Nintendo just completely passed me. I was aware that it existed. I think I played like occasion, the occasional Mario game because I was at a friend's house or whatever, but mm-hmm. I just, nothing reproaching context. It, was, it wasn't until much later when I became a game designer that I went back and started playing them because it's the, these are cultural touchstones for yeah. games. I should be at least somewhat familiar with them. So I have since played Mario games. I have since played a good chunk of Mega Man. I have since played, you know, a little bit of Zelda. So I'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little more aware of them. But also, I just something like Fazanadu was just like, oh, this is a thing that exists. Um, but I right. don't have the same kind of, of of emotional connection. But I do understand having the emotional connection to it because, like, I am that way with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy's text adventure game, which is ridiculously hard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I have never beaten it in my entire life uh, <laughs> but I mean I remember spending months just trying to brute force my way through that game so I yeah. completely get that and like I, I know we've talked about computer games on here before so I'm not going to like jump in with all of my computer games I used to play because uh, I'm pretty sure I've talked about them on here already mm-hmm. but yeah no that was, it, was just a, it is interesting how we all have these kind of nostalgia bombs in our youth that other people just don't you know, like, right. and realizing that somebody could have almost all the same cultural experiences as you, except for this one thing that was actually kind of important to you, is really interesting to me. Like, I have so many friends who are into the Final Fantasy games, for instance, and I right. never got into them until I was much older. Um, so I haven't played most of the early ones, even though I know that, for instance, our friend Meredith plays FF7, I think, every yeah. single year. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, why would you do that? But not really, because it makes her happy. So that's, that's all that matters. Right. Well, when I realized that most of my love for video games and the NES and well and the Super Nintendo as well uh, was born largely out of nostalgia and not out of the quality of games, I was really quite sad because I recall playing video games being a massive part of my childhood. I wasn't the most mm-hmm. sociable of children or most popular of children. So, play, so, so playing <laughs> video games was perfect escapism, that and reading books. And so when I first learned how to emulate games or learn about you know emulators and ROMs mm-hmm. and I you know, first downloaded Neztickle or one of these other emulators and thought, wow, I've got access to hundreds of Nintendo games now. I'm going to play them all, play all the games I never had access to as a child. And and I started playing it. Yeah, and I realized these are, most of these are shite. 
Uh, in fact, most of the games <laughs> I've played are shite. And it's testament, I guess, to the absolutely amazing quality of games like Super Mario Brothers, Legend of Zelda. Yes, uh, they hold that, up so well. Yeah, that they still hold up. They are still playable. That's mm-hmm. in, in terms of both difficulty and level design and just pure mechanics they are in no way broken they are all eminently playable there is a difficulty curve and i think that is the most impressive thing and the thing that almost holds them up above most video games today wearing my old man hat for a moment is that (laughs) games like the original mario where the levels do get increasingly difficult and your precision needs to be better uh, mm-hmm. each time uh, is is a very different experience to the more holistic gaming experience of today where you aren't often stripped of your weapons or your special abilities or you know it almost seems like you plateau earlier in video mm-hmm. games now but then again that may just be me playing it with the benefit of age and right being just all around better at games. But if I go back to one of those old games, uh, especially something like Mario the Lost Levels, I will find, okay, these first few levels are easy, and then by the time I'm on World 4 or 5, I'm thinking, God, this is actually a challenge. And it's an <laughs> right. enjoyable one. And Well, I mean, uh, you also like things like Cuphead, so obviously a challenge is, is fun for you. Yeah, yeah, you know, not not diminishing people who do like to play things on easy mode all the way through. Uh, but, yeah, for me, it's... Uh, it the, the difference between what does stand up as a classic and the things that are just broken come replay. And the same goes for tabletop role-playing games as well, in my experience. There are people, mm-hmm. of course, that go back to I mean, OSR, of course, is a big thing in certain markets. Uh, and yet, whenever I look at a game like that, I just think there is nothing that could make me want to play this. Because there, for me, mechanically speaking, and often related to the theme of those games, or the presented theme of those games, mm-hmm. it feels like it. the reason these things were left behind is because they weren't as good as what came after. Uh, but uh, that's a matter of my taste. I may mm-hmm. make enemies by saying that, but you know, right. it is what it is. Yeah, and I mean, you know, building off of the idea of of, uh, of role playing games and even experiencing things, perhaps time wise, slightly out of order from your contemporaries. Let's talk about Mummy the Curse. <laughs> <laughs> That was uh, a very inventive segue. Yeah, that was that was really interesting. We are talking about you know nostalgia and going back in time. It makes sense on some level. Just yeah. I was like, oh shit, I have a segue. I have a segue. That, that that said, I want to put one cap on this, and that is that if, if you have a Switch, you can play so many of these games for like a subscription fee. Yeah, the Nintendo Online, and I definitely have in my like plans soon to play all the Donkey Kong countries again. And possibly Yoshi's Island because that was my favorite when I was a kid. Yeah. Also, and apparently there's rumor that um, some of the Game Boy games are going to be hitting that service too. That's so. also very cool. But uh, I, I, I only had a black and white Game Boy, so it, the, those those aren't experiences that I relish as much. Like I played enough. a lot of Tetris. Some of the game choices on the uh, Nintendo Online, Super Nintendo Online, are really odd. 
though, uh, on the on the Switch. The Wii U, which I know no one had, ha- also had uh, virtual consoles on it, and the game libraries were much larger. And the Switch, of course, does the virtual consoles now with much smaller libraries. And after the initial wave of classics, they put out just some really bizarre choices for games people might want to play. And I don't know how much of it is down to licensing. And I know we've discussed this many moons ago, the difficulty Nintendo might have with tracking down who holds what license on what third-party game, because not every Nintendo game was made purely by Nintendo, far from it. Very few were uh, in in comparison to the size of the library. Uh, but yeah, when when you look at something like Farzanadu, to circle back to our original conversation, made by I think um, it's Hudson Soft or something like yes. that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what that? I doubt it's a straight line to tell to be able to tell what happened to Hudson Soft, who then procured the the licenses to each of the Xanadu games, and especially Far Xanadu, this Nintendo port, the only Xanadu game on a console. And, you know, it, it probably splays off in all number of directions. And honestly, the profit margins would be so slim to tracking it down, procuring it or licensing it, and then emulating it, repackaging it and selling it that companies like Nintendo probably think, well... You know, would please a handful of people, but it wouldn't be worth our time. Right. Which is sad, but that's why emulators exist, I could say, and not advocating piracy at all, but that is why emulators exist. No, drag down a copy of the card online and then. Exactly. For, you know, $500 for a uh, 8 bit game. Why not? Yeah, sure. Um, I like how I said, said I'm going to put a button on this real quick. And then Matthew's (laughs) like, and I'm going to talk for five more minutes. Damn it, Matthew. Well, I'm going to add a zipper and I'm going to keep going zip, 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 up and down. <laughs> and that's my, <laughs> my cap uh... on this. So both of you have worked on Mummy the Curse Second Edition. <laughs> Did we? God yes. damn it. What a brute force is thinking about it. Yes, but in, in various capacities. Um, uh, and as uh Last week we talked about uh, uh, Deviance since that's coming out or that has now out. Um, Mummy the Curse Second Edition is also coming out. Just and it's just it was intentional. Just kind of how things came on the pipe as we have it's to. It's an embarrassment of riches really right needy. now for Chronicles. Yes, yeah, so if you mm, love Second Edition, of rich Thomases. Boy howdy, it's gonna, a whole <laughs> bunch of it's gonna, how, Riches Thomas. We've talked about this. Yes, yes. <laughs> riches Thomas, like Attorney General. Um. So, uh, it's been a while since we talked about Mummy the Curse, so it's probably worth kind of doing a recap. Um, so, uh, Dixie, what's kind of the high level of Mummy the Curse? You're a mummy. You're cursed. Cool. So, Matthew, let's talk about the <laughs> No, uh, Mummy the Curse, it, it, it is at its heart kind of about that. Uh, but one of the cool things that we did with 2nd Edition is that we made them timeless. So, instead of waking up in order, which you did in the 1E game, uh, with like very specific I- intervals of like being awoken and dealing with your cult and going out and doing things, um, you now wake up whenever in time your storyteller wants you to. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> pardon me. And then like as as you regain your memory of your previous life and things you've done already, that's that, that's when your powers start to diminish. Uh, so mommy, it's a very like cyclical game, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. Nice. And again, it, it's ties back to what we were talking about earlier in the sense that um, experiencing things kind of 
out of order. It is mm-hmm. an interesting take on, on uh, it, really any game. Actually, our entire video game conversation was completely relevant to this because we all have these weird different memories. And as we talk to each other, our memories get better and better and better, but we also lose our powers because now very, we have less very talk good, about... Dixie. Yeah, you you uh, <laughs> you stamped and sealed that one. I think that I think they'll buy it. So, so what you're saying is that by the time we hit episode 200, we'll be completely powerless and go back to sleep. We'll have nothing to talk about yeah. anymore. We'll be done. No, <laughs> except done. except we could start talking about the things we talked about the first time because we would no longer remember them. We wake back up and start over again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> episode one. Who are we? No, we already did that. Damn it. Um. Uh. So, I mean, how does that? Come into gameplay though. I mean, like it's a cool idea, but like, um, how do you, how does it play out on the table? Do, I mean, do do the players all know that they're bouncing around different timelines? Do you just play the games out of sequence? How do you handle like causality? How does that all kind of work, Matthew? How did you kind of design that? Well, Eddie, with difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of those interviews, huh? Let's see how it is. Uh, yeah. So. This is, I guess, part of the difference between 1st edition and 2nd edition Mummy, and it does bear referencing what 1st edition Mummy had going for Mm -hmm. it and some of the problems that uh, it possessed, in my view, as developer of the 2nd Ed. And the 1st edition, while it wasn't prescribed, did have a set chronicle that you could play through, and it was pretty linear. It started in the modern era, and, mm-hmm. and and pass through a very, rather narrow time scale, but all focused around one uh, astronomical event. Now, uh, it obviously had the element of your powers fade and then you wake up later having not remembered what went before. And if you are to play a game like that, of course, that requires a certain amount of buy-in from the players. Uh, they have to agree not to meta game or to change the structure of their... Uh, their group, their maret of uh, mummies. Maybe next time someone else is playing a mummy and the rest of you are playing cultists, or one of you is a sadiq and an immortal servant to a mummy, that kind of thing. Mm. But I would say, and again, my to my tastes, it's, it didn't necessarily hang together as well as I would have liked uh, in first edition. And I say this as a big fan of First Ed. It was one of the first Chronicles of Darkness games I fell in love with, or New World of Darkness. Well, as it's well. the first one you worked on too, right? It was indeed, yeah. Uh, so I do have a lot of investment there, which is a word that may come up later as it's uh, present in Mummy 2nd Edition. But yeah, I found the idea of playing strictly linear games that uh, where, where you went through the cycle of I remember everything, now I remember nothing, I remember everything, I remember nothing, or vice versa, uh, would get repetitive and require a certain amount of shoehorning uh, to to make work over the long term and honestly from an outside perspective looking in outside of the working on these games and being fans of these games I think that's a tough sell to right. a lot of role players uh, it's it's a really fun gimmick, I love the idea of starting off with godlike powers but uh, no memory and ending your cycle with uh, all the memories of all of your sins and all of your potential uh, but not having the power to do anything with it, that's, that is brilliant, it's poetic, it's tragic mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's a wonderful vein of horror that the Chronicles of Darkness hadn't tapped into mm-hmm. uh, but you need a very specific type of group who want to play that Mm -hmm. 
So then we get on to second edition. And immediately we present it as the Timeless Chronicle uh, because mummies in second edition are timeless and we basically insinuate that they have always been such. Right. It isn't that they time travel. It isn't that they go backwards or forwards in time. It's that they exist at all points in time and therefore uh, to steal a true detective line, which I believe may have been stolen from someone else, time is a flat circle. You, <laughs> you, you exist at all times, in all places, simultaneously, because you are eternal beings. You're not undead. You're not, uh, you're not just a corpse that rises from the dead at certain uh, convenient moments. You are something that is lodged improperly in the fabric of time and space and sometimes your consciousness will drift forward sometimes it will drift back sometimes it will drift sideways sometimes you will return to some place you have already been now what that opened up to us was for one thing now traveling backwards and forwards was nice and easy you could justify it within the game you could therefore play a lot with historical eras we'd already presented in Dark Eras, Dark Eras 2, which is you know good for us and also good for the people that bought those books. Mm. Uh, but it also means you get to play around a little more with the idea of memory where you can sort of start making your own fates. You can start relying less on the storyteller to prescribe what will happen to you or what has happened to you in the past and, uh, and I guess, reveal it like some intricate uh, ancient Chinese box that's uh, coming apart and say, oh, okay, another mystery, another mystery. That's fun, but in my view, it's even more fun if the players get more say in that. And by going backwards and forwards in time all the time, you are having very real control over yeah. who your character was and where they're going. I think the true detective quote is actually uh, distilling down uh, Nietzsche's theory of eternal recurrence, or not theory, but like, I don't know, philosophy, which is yeah. really interesting too. It's just a really pessimistic reading of it in true detective because that's who that character is. Yes. Right. I just find it really interesting. I don't know. So the, the idea of the cause and effect isn't really a factor because it's all happening simultaneously in some way. Is that... Right. Well, that's that is the mystery of second edition. That is mm -hmm. the <laughs> the mystery that pulls your players in that makes them think. Well, can we affect our future selves? Can we uh, make things better for ourselves? Can we undo this curse that we have placed on ourselves? Mm. Okay. Because even the mummies don't understand the full extent of their power and their reach uh, within. I guess the universe, multiverse, call it what you like. Um, so I think it's... I, I've ran a very long Chronicle of Mummy the Curse, second edition, ever since we started working on it. So I've just been playing with it, tinkering with it. And we do some of that same stuff from first edition where people shift roles within the Marette, but usually the mummy stays the same. It's just mm -hmm. players play sorcerers, or they play other immortals, or they play Sadiq, or they might play mortal cultists, or their descendants each time, or their ancestors, because again, you might be going backwards. And, yeah, I think the that, that's, that presentation of we know we have 
this power and you certainly come to the realization by the end of your first descent or awakening that uh, we we may be going backwards we may go, be going forwards now how can we change things so that we don't repeat the same mistakes mm-hmm. is more engaging than the somewhat fatalistic view of you are always doomed to repeat your mistakes, which is in the first edition. I've got nothing against right. doom-laden nihilistic playing. <laughs> oh, I'm I, a I, I, fan. Yeah, exactly. I'm a Wraith the Oblivion fan. Uh, but I also think that it's very important to give players something to strive towards. Mm-hmm. And not leave them feeling empty. You know, a cathartic arc can be great, but I would say in my experience, the vast majority of players like to feel rewarded uh, because of something they've accomplished or something they might accomplish. And you could even make the argument that uh, you still have that fatalistic play, but it's actually more poignant if the players have some kind of agency and it's ultimately all still doomed to failure um, or they are inadvertently the architects of their own uh, downfall. Right. Um, that makes it a little more poignant than kind of cosmic horror. Well, it's just all going to be terrible anyway. Also, I think Mummy Mummy 2E lends itself really well to that kind of ongoing campaign. Because I know that we've talked before about how characters can get stale sometimes. And mm-hmm. that is just a thing that happens sometimes if you play a game for a long time. Is you're like, I really liked this concept, but I've played it for eight weeks now and I'm feeling kind of one note, you know? Um, and so... Right. Once once you switch times, it's like, I can make my ancestor way cooler, or I can make my, you know, de- descendant completely different. And you're still playing in the same game, yeah, which I think mm-hmm. is really, really fun. Well, one of my chief frustrations with first edition, and it was a simple thing, I could have home ruled it or home brewed it so that it wasn't an issue, was that your the characters you made for 2014 or whenever it was released uh, were, were starting level. You had the attribute abilities and uh, utterances apportionment that you would have when creating a character from scratch. And that didn't even jive with the idea that all mummies wake up with every sothic turn, you know, a mm-hmm. specific astronomical event, every mummy wakes up. Where had all the experience gone? Now, it would have been very simple for me when making second edition to just say, well, if you decide your first game is going to be set in 2021, your characters all start off with 100 extra experience points. Enjoy. Mm. But it was more satisfying, and I think to, narratively uh, as well as to me, that if you want your characters to have starting level experience in 2021, mm-hmm. It actually makes sense because this may be the first time you realize you have woken up. So you may have woken up several times, but you only have the abilities you had when you first descended into mummydom. And therefore, if you then come back in 1666 or uh, to enjoy the Great Fire of London, uh, you now have. <laughs> yes, some... I enjoy that. Yes. It's going to be fun. You probably started it as a mummy. Uh, you you wake up and you may now have some points in computer and you may now have some merits that you picked up in 2021 and an affinity that you spent experience points on in the modern era. And your character, this is part of the challenge of the roleplay, 
doesn't necessarily understand how to apply those powers immediately, but you can start applying them as time goes on. Now, some things like dots and computer are not going to serve you very well in the 17th century, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean you won't possess the knowledge. And this is how you as a mummy can start enriching and empowering your cult. And so we wove all this into the text, but it's, it's quite apparent that the reason mummies' cults essentially persist for hundreds, if not thousands of years, is because they've they've got a bit of the luck of the Medici and you know the fortune behind them. But that fortune comes from mummies having future knowledge that they eventually gain and can impart to their cults to basically say, make sure you back this horse, uh, to put it in a very individualistic way. Invest in Apple. Yeah, invest in Apple, exactly. Invest in Apple in the mid-90s and and just ride the wave after that. And they'll say, why? And you just tap your nose and say, trust me. And you know the next time you wake up after that event, your cult is still going to be thriving or have done far better than the cult that weren't given this kind of insider dealing information. Yeah, I... I really dig. And as you're talking about cults, um, you mentioned them a couple of times now. So um, how do they fit into the overall kind of game dynamic? Are they basically ghouls? Do people play these characters? Are they just a a, a merit? How how do they work? So, yeah, uh, you can play them. There's character creation rules for them. You can create Mm -hmm. mortals as they're presented in Chronicles of Darkness, or you can create special kinds of cultists. Uh, I mentioned a few options. The Sadiq, which they were introduced in first edition. Uh, They are essentially immortal retainers, very much like ghouls for mummies. And I would say my biggest issue with the Sadiq, again, as they're presented in first ed, they have some of this in second ed as well, is why would anyone want to be a mummy when you could be a Sadiq? Because Sadiq wake up and they have no loss of memory whatsoever. Mm. Uh, And they have all of the powers they had last time. So... Uh, they wake up at the same time as the mummy. They fall asleep at the same time as the mummy. So they're just better mummies. But you can say the same thing about ghouls and vampires, essentially. You know, I have disciplines, I am immortal, and I can go out in the day, uh, but I'm also a junkie. So, you know, um, <laughs> swings and roundabouts. Um, but where I think the cultists really get interesting <laughs> is with the sorcerers and the immortals. So I was a big fan of World of Darkness Immortals. Mm-hmm. for the new World of Darkness back then. And as soon as I was working on Chronicles of Darkness lines, I was trying to find a way to uh, add them to a second edition book. Yeah, I am glad you brought them up because that is one of the things that I think is coolest about Mummy Dewey. Oh, well, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I managed to add them in Dark Eras 2. And I believe, not Dark Eras 2, Dark Eras 1, my apologies, or Dark Eras Companion, so many Dark Eras. I think it was Dark Eras Companion. Dark Eras 1.5. Yes, in the uh, second Mummy era we did, I added them as as antagonists and potential cultists. I edited Uh, that book and I don't remember that. Ah, uh, I believe they, you, but I don't they, books They're in the fall of uh, Isirion uh, chapter, which I've never known how to pronounce, uh, about Cleopatra and Egypt. And I came up with three types of, of sorcerer as well in that chapter. And I thought, and I, as I was doing it, I was thinking, if I get to develop Mummy 2nd Edition, I'm going to be putting these in pride of place as antagonists and playable characters. So... 
They each have different mechanics behind them to make them function in a second edition setting. They aren't just uh, carbon copies from how they were presented in first ed in either case. Uh, but they have their own set of powers, their own sets of restrictions, their own motives, their own loyalties. They're not necessarily blood-bound, as it were, to the arisen, to the mummies. And immortals especially are fundamentally selfish creatures because they will do whatever they can to stay alive forever. Uh, you know, Dorian Gray writ massive. Right. And so... You have your blood bathers, you have your Eternals, you have your Reborn, and so on. And we, we're introducing more of them in the upcoming Book of Lasting Death. Uh, so if any haven't appeared in Mummy 2nd Edition yet that you enjoy, you probably will get to see them. Uh, yes. But yeah, the the idea was... And so I, I'm about to go off on a little bit of a moan. The idea was to create as many playable options and as much diversity and accessibility as I could within Mummy 2nd Edition. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I felt like the Mummy concept on its own was really fantastic for a, for a small niche of role players, but there needed to be more. And so this is why Sorcerers and Immortals are attractive playable options for Mummy 2nd Edition. Mm -hmm. Now, here's my moan. And... Uh, I've, and I say this as a massive fan of these books and feeling like Mummy, the second edition, is one of my, one of the best games I've had a chance to develop. I really feel that way about it. I'm very, very proud of Mummy. Uh, nevertheless. <laughs> uh, <laughs> However, it's crap. Time, time, time for a loan. <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, I feel, and I don't know how the two of you feel, and you don't have to feel obliged to comment, that since Promethean 2nd Edition, we kind of started adopting this 20th anniversary attitude towards some of our Chronicles of Darkness core books. Not all of them, uh, but some of them really have this in where one could look at them and say this is a bit bloated maybe <laughs> um now requiem forsaken mage uh changeling as well um are are quite tightly focused and uh, don't you know go don't throw everything in um but I remember when I first read Promethean 2nd Edition, which I am a big fan of. I've ran it far more than I ran Promethean 1st Ed. But I remember thinking, wow, there's a lot of options in here. Mm -hmm. There's th This is every power and every playable uh, type of Promethean that existed in 1st Edition. Is this a 2nd Edition or is it an Anniversary Edition? Because mm. it was around the same time, you know, we were doing all the 20th anniversary calls. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether that design philosophy of we've got to put everything in so that the players are satisfied and they're not wondering where this favorite obscure uh, character is, whether we've got to put everything in the core book. And so when we got to Mummy, and so this is my first Chronicles of Darkness core book next to, I guess, Contagion Chronicle, which isn't really a core book, uh, that I I developed. And I was split at first thinking, well, do I keep it very slim, like Mummy First Edition, incredibly tightly focused on this playable experience? Do I expand it, 
massively mm-hmm. to the to the extent of something like Promethean Second Edition, or do I find somewhere in the middle? And the more I try to stay somewhere in the middle, the more I found myself drifting towards the massive bloat. Uh, so when I say I'm having a moan, I guess every game designer has some regrets. I don't regret putting immortals or sorcerers or cultists or the sheer amount of antagonists that exist in this book in. Mm-hmm. But as a game designer, I worry that someone will pick up this book and they will feel like I don't know where to start. Now, I feel like we we laid this book out in a far better way than first edition, that we had mm. a much better designed philosophy in mind, that it is more accessible in many ways than first ed. And mm-hmm. it is more accessible than, and I'm not, I, I hate to keep picking on Promethean because I love Promethean, but I find it's more accessible than Promethean from my view. But at the same time, I'm aware that some people will see the sheer array of options and think, oh, okay, I, I where, where do I start on picking this tapestry? <laughs> uh, where, how do I make sense of it? So I don't know, maybe you can put those fears to rest or maybe you'll just agree. Um, I don't entirely agree. I, I agree somewhat. I mean, um, uh, something that I think we as a company have been thinking about is uh, trying to strike a balance between the big meaty books and smaller, slimmer games. I mean, Pugmire was my own experiment in that space, honestly. Um, is it, can, I, can I do a D&D experience in a, a smaller space? Uh, the Trinity games um, started off as that, although for the, the Trinity with a similar experience, like if, as we reimagined them, we had to kind of touch on everything, not absolutely everything, but like stuff that was part of that line because in a lot of games supplements sometimes end up being effectively bug fixes uh to go back to our video game analogy um you know when games came out in the 90s you made the game you put it out and then there wasn't really any kind of meaningful way to get feedback until people started playing and then go oh okay i'm gonna put out a book to kind of Mm -hmm. stealth fix some of those problems um, and even earlier Vampire the Masquerade books, they were pretty explicit. Like I remember the first player's guide was like, this is functionally an errata. They just printed in the book. Yeah. Change these rules. And then some of them were optional, but some of them were just like, no, this, this is just wrong. Just, it should be this now. Mm-hmm. Um, and also introducing concepts that some of those concepts are pretty optional, but some of those concepts become pretty oversized. Uh, this is an anniversary edition reference but still i think it's valid is something like ghouls um playable ghouls not really a concept for any edition of the original vampire the masquerade they were nbcs and then there was the ghouls book and it became so popular and so much a part of people's perception of how vampire should be played that we there was really a need to make sure there was a playable ghouls chapter inside of second mm-hmm. the anniversary edition mm-hmm. um and so just hearing you not being as in as uh, entrenched in Mummy the Curse as you have been, when you're saying, I feel like this is an omission in first edition, that doesn't strike me as we're just throwing it in there because it needs to be there. It's you as a designer saying, this is a piece of the experience that makes this feel cohesive and whole. And so yeah. we're adding it here. Uh, well, I, I would agree. I think that for my vision to, uh, I know that sounds very artistic, uh, for to actually 
be cemented, there would need to be more options than just the guilds, the mummy guilds, uh, essentially. Uh, and I did chop some stuff away from previous editions, like the sheer array of judges you might follow, the gods, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, But in, in their place, I've added more playable options, which I'm all for playability. I don't regret that. Um, but, you know... Uh, I am also getting to the point where, much like you, Eddie, with uh, game design uh, philosophy, I value the slimmer book. I I see the benefits of a of a sleek product that is as accessible as possible. And again, I don't regret anything with Mummy Second Edition. I think it's beautiful. I think it's a fantastic game, and I think a lot of people are going to enjoy it a great deal. But I think I would have required a completely different vision for Mummy the sec- Second Edition to make it, you know, Pugmire size, and right. or even they came from size, and I, uh, I, and maybe that doesn't fit in with how we've been making Chronicles of Darkness Second Edition cores. Uh, yeah, I, also, if, I still if, think if every game needs to be that. I mean, um, if we were just making a game about, let's play a cool mummy, you know, you could do a 150-page book uh, of just mm-hmm. classic mummy tropes. Yeah, um, totally. I mean, you could probably do, knock out a very simple, they came from beyond the grave version of mummy in very, very little page count, page count. That's not what this is. You're selling a whole new experience. And not only is this a whole new experience from classic mummy tropes, but also it's a whole new experience from first edition. So you need word count to not only express that, but also to cement that. Uh, so, um, and, and frankly, yes, I, I, I find on a casual basis, I like picking up a nice 150-page, 200-page book and flipping through it. But also I completely recognize you know, there's value in saying now the huge, massive book and really enjoying the depth and uh, a texture of a well-realized world. Hmm. Um, you know, it's like yes, I enjoy picking up a game like they came from and just quickly playing, but also I sat down and read Eclipse Phase cover to cover. You know, and that's mm-hmm. a that's that's a 500 page book. Yeah, yeah, true. You know, um, I mean, so I, I think there is, I think there will always be a market for both kinds of books. Um, so. I personally feel like um, looking at I'm, I'm, I'm right now. I have the PDF open for Mummy Two E. It's 375 pages, which Dixie, correct me wrong. That's pretty typical for a Chronicles core these days, right? Chronicles cores generally run about 200,000 words, so yeah, that's that's normal, right? So it's 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 on on par with the books that we've established. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, and we just talked about Deviant. Uh, 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 last week, and Deviant is a very specific experience. It's about the same word count, mm-hmm. um, but a but lot it, of that word is dedicated to like widgets and powers, right? Exactly. Um, and even though Deviant is a focused experience in terms of the experience it's trying to come across, it's kind of got the opposite problem where there's so many media possibilities that you could shove into Deviant that's got to kind of at least acknowledge that those. You know, a Deadpool type experience, a common writer experience, a The Fly experience, all those things kind of feed into Deviant. Whereas with uh, Mummy, there's not a lot of archetypal mummy stories. Yeah, there really aren't that many. Like, there's the mummy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's some, you know, hammer horror type stuff, but really, mummies aren't as 
they don't have the personality that like a vampire has in no. in the cultural consciousness or that a Frankenstein has or what, what have you, you know, because I feel like if you say vampire to most people, they're immediately going to picture something along the lines of a Dracula. Right. You know, um, and I feel like that's the same thing. If you say Frankenstein's monster, Frankenstein, people are going to picture the like Boris Karloff Frankenstein. But you say mummy and like I, I think of museums. Mm-hmm. And like Scooby Doo villains more than I think of like an actual like big touchstone, or I just think of Brendan Fraser because he's phenomenal. Yeah, it, it is difficult to picture a mummy as a protagonist, especially uh, they. I think they suffer the werewolf problem in that regard. Uh, I would yes. say in many ways, mummy is quite close to werewolf like that, in that the enemy is an unstoppable, unthinking beast. Uh, with the difference being the werewolf is very primal and the mummy is very godlike. Um, but I think we add a lot of character to mummies without making it, without entrenching it too much in the idea of Lost Irem and the Nameless Empire, which is part of, I guess, the mummy meta plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, m- for, mummy... for, for, for what it has meta plot, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, Mummy was the only first edition game arguably, that had a thick meta plot. Uh, other games had it, definitely, you know, and especially as products were released. Uh, this is Chronicles of Darkness, obviously. Um, the other games built up a an established world that there, there are many words we could use, but meta plot pretty much functions, especially when you read the Vampire the Requiem novels as an example. Right. which are fantastic, as we often mention. Uh, but Mummy was, oddly, I guess appropriately for the game, it kind of felt out of sync with the other New World of Darkness cores back then, because it almost felt like a World of Darkness game, in the mm-hmm. sense that it had such a such a history of, of characters, of locations, of events that have occurred in the established past. This mm-hmm. wasn't all storyteller fiat, this was the canon. Now, mm-hmm. in second edition, I feel we pulled away from that. There are still plenty of references to the past of Irem and mummies in general and what made them that way. But again, because you can play around with history so much in second ed, the game hinges itself less on that and more on your interactions with the world you happen to be in at any given time and the people around you. So I feel like Mummy turned from an existential game, which it was in first edition, to a very personal game in second edition. It's more about you and your cult and the people, Mm -hmm. you know, the people around you in second ed and the journeys you take together. So a bit Doctor Who like, uh, Mm -hmm. than, I don't know, Quantum Leap, where every episode you're going somewhere different and you never have to return there again. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, well, I don't think I've mentioned Quantum Leap in an episode before. So. I think in general, Chronicle Second Edition tried to stay away from having like an established meta plot, um, because that was one of the things that set Chronicles apart from World, mm. yeah. just kind of in, in general. And I know that from just from talking to Rose uh, when I was first working on some of these games, because one of the first big books I did was the Chronicles core, the like two E core, and uh, yeah, like just talking to her about like yeah, we, we want to keep it like pretty, you know 
metaplot agnostic. We don't want to introduce any events that like definitely happened uh, because it's supposed to be more of a toolboxy game where it's like, here are the tools, have fun. We'll, we'll, we'll give you story hooks, sure. But we're not going to say like, so-and-so is the Prince of Chicago, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, because that's a different game. It's a different way of playing. Uh, so yeah, I I think we did really well with, with 2E, pulling away from some of that while still having it in there. Because of course, you've got to have Irem, you've got to have judges, you've got to have all of those things, or else it's not mummy. Right? Yes. And to go back to your concern matthew um if you do present something that's more designed to be a toolbox you gotta have a lot of tools in it um so you're concerned about did that present too many options if your core design is we're going to give you 12 options we expect you to use five or six then it makes sense you're going to give a lot of options and those options should all feel like they're of equal weight and of equal interest so people can fine-tune so there's an, if you're going to present 12 options and you know three of them are not going to be useful, then you present nine options. And sometimes that gets narrowed down. But again, it's going to go back um, with something like Trinity Core, for example. It's a very slim book because it's basically presented as you can play any modern day action adventure television show or movie with this. And you're bringing that to the table. Oh, I can play. Uh, Mission Impossible. I can play, um, you know, the Born Identity. I can play Twenty Four. I can play whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're bringing your expectations to that, and then the book shows you very simply. Here's how you can do this. How you can do this. And then like all the affi- allegiances kind of help you to fumble it down a bit. But generally speaking, it, it's meant to be a wide variety of media because there isn't much for Mummy or even for Promethean for that matter. Um, you have to bring those in and say, okay, here's so much you can do with this. Because you, you come in going, what can I really do with a game about Frankenstein? What can I do with a game about Mummy? And then the game has to say, no, seriously, here's so much you can do. Look at all this stuff. And you go, okay, wow, this is actually almost a little overwhelming. So let me just ignore a couple of these options and focus yeah. on the stuff that I think is cool. Because you have to throw so much at people say, is this cool? Is this cool? Is this cool? Is this cool? Until something grabs them. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny that uh, when I know we've told the story many times on here now that Dixie and I, uh, obviously one of the things we were most excited about was the timeless element in Mummy. And then when we did first drafts on this edition, we discovered <laughs> that we hadn't actually allocated anyone word count to talk about it. Oh, we were so excited when we got the pitch. We were talking about it, going back and forth. Like, this is what makes this thing cool. And then just didn't tell anyone to write it. Now, now it wasn't that it was completely uh, cut out. There was plenty of occasions. It was referenced. Yeah, yeah, where it was referenced, where it was implicit. It was implicit in the text. But it it was certainly never explicit. We never gave a sidebar or part of a chapter to discussing timelessness. But the other thing I don't think we've mentioned much, and this is a deep dive, it's a good opportunity to do so, is the powers in Mummy, the utterances and affinities. Mm -hmm that one of the greatest pieces of feedback that we received over the Kickstarter was essentially the powers felt quite anemic. There there weren't enough of them. Mm -hmm. Now, this did get me thinking when I was developing this uh, book, well, I don't want this to be like the Chronicles of Darkness books you are referencing where I need to have every single utterance and more besides to make it feel like a second edition. I think there is a certain customer expectation that is, well, if this is a second edition, I want more than was in first edition. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't just want 
evolution. I don't just want things to change for the better. I want more than I had last time. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. often applies to the field of special powers, essentially. And so I thought about it for a long time, about well, how closely do I want to stick to my original outline and how much do I want to spec out another bunch of powers worth ten to 20,000 words? Because, again, it will this will inflate the cost of the book and inflate the word count. It will inflate the cost of arts because you can't just put 20,000 words in a vacuum. Yep. And in the end, I spoke to Rich about it and we decided that it would be a good idea to add the powers. I don't, again, mm-hmm. I don't regret that. I think it's always good to provide players with even more tools than they will probably need. Um, but it was one of those design choices that was made halfway through the process much like adding timelessness, but that was a case where it had been forgotten appropriately for Mummy. But in in this case, it was something where enough people said, well, one of my favourite things in first edition was being able to to use a power that I think we did put in in the first draft, uh, Mm -hmm. bring meteors down and smash them into the Empire State Building. And and I and I would look at the mansion and say, well, you can't technically do that in second edition, so I guess we probably should add it. <laughs> and then you'd have another person saying, well, my favourite thing was being able to turn into a cloud of acrid smoke, and oh, you can't <laughs> do that anymore. No, well, maybe we should. And with every single person saying this, what became fascinating to me was how different people had engaged with first edition in different ways that especially along the field of powers that people had tailored their characters to perform in a certain way and so this was the experience they wanted to replicate in a second edition and i saw the same thing with v5 that uh, and mostly in in the way of complaint when i when i wrote oblivion for the la sombra first of all and the outcry that they were no longer thick, obtenative tentacles. No, uh, they're way cooler now. And I will fight anyone who says otherwise. I love well, the idea that they're like two-dimensional yeah. shadows that slither up someone's legs and then pull them to the ground because that's how I use them in my game. And and that, mm-hmm. and that of course, is my preference. That was uh, Karim's <laughs> suggestion. Karim like Amar at awesome. Paradox. He didn't want this sort of anime-style... Um, abyssal squid lurking in the sewers underneath every La Sombra yeah. <laughs> waiting have, to just burst out. I have played La Sombra in multiple iterations of Vampire. Um, mo- most recently, obviously, in my V5 game, but prior to that, uh, a few years ago, maybe like three years ago, I was playing uh, an anti-trib in a V20 game. And thinking about how it looked from how my like V20 La Sombra did that versus how my v5 does that i find the v5 one so much creepier yeah because, it's like, more just, subtle yeah you're just like standing in a corner and suddenly these shadows you know, whip over you which is a normal thing that happens sometimes shadows you know appear on you um mm. but then they start constricting you or breaking your bones in extreme cases and that that's way creepier to me to have these like intangible things suddenly becoming a threat so yeah, sorry to everyone who enjoyed Arms of the Abyss in all previous editions. It's, I'm uh... I'm I'm defending you. I'm I'm <laughs> defending the crap out of you because I have played. I I've had that power in so many different games, and I think this is the coolest version of it. 
And I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier about, about mummy to a degree is that sometimes design decisions are made in earlier editions that end up jarring with what you're trying to do, especially if you're trying to update it and modernize. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Like vampire in the nineties, that was cool, you know? Um, and, and that was something that was interesting and evocative, but then, you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, anime um, and also comics like The Darkness came out after that. Um, and so the Shadow Tendrils thing became so overplayed culturally. And people can even make an argument that maybe Vampire the Masquerade had a hand in that. Mm-hmm. That, okay, now it feels weird. It feels totally off to where we're taking the property now. And sometimes you do have to take away something. Ideally, you want to replace it with something that's equivalent so people can still see what they want to see at the game what they really love about the game but occasionally yeah it's like you know what what you love about the game just doesn't pass muster to modern cultures like you know there are problematic elements of games that we end up having to just remove and it's like i'm sorry you really love that but it's kind of problematic we need, we need to move yeah. past it uh, um mm-hmm. so i mean i think there it's, it's a hard decision I, I agree with you it's like in general you want new additions to f- people to feel like they can see what they originally loved about the game in it as they move forward um, but you know, you can't cater to everyone who loves Thacko. Sometimes you just gotta move on. <laughs> well, I think that's that was the key learning point here. That you know, I, I definitely had a vision coming in on Mummy Second Edition, and what I was telling myself when I was initially getting that uh, backer feedback on the Kickstarter was, well, my Mummy the Curse game is a essentially a game of personal horror and a certain amount of tragedy, but also mm-hmm. exploration and mystery. And utterances aren't as important as they were in first edition. This isn't is this is no longer a game where you are going to be destroying cities with your powers. Right. But then I listened to the feedback, and I know you know sometimes we'll say ah you know criticism we don't care, uh, or but or other times we'll say we listen to every word and we do read every word of errata and we do honestly uh, despite you know the fact we may make some offhand remark about an offhand remark about our work, um, it's our job to make games people want to play, and so I did read the comments. And I did think about it, and I did talk about it with Rich, and I realized, well, it can still be the game I want it to be and provide the tools people want to make it the game they want it to be. Yes. And so there will be people who play Mummy who want to play it the way that I have designed it or had in mind when I designed it, and having additional utterances and having additional antagonists and locations to fight them in and all of that doesn't take away from that and if you do want to play the game and you do want to be the godlike mummy standing on top of a skyscraper hurling meteors down at your enemies you can do that too and play the game that way Mm -hmm. and I, i don't think there's anything wrong with that i think that works very well for chronicles of darkness because chronicles of darkness is a perfect role playing game when it comes to being a toolbox when it comes to saying we have presented you all these lovely options and you do not have to have all of them. And you- actually, mm-hmm. um, I want to read directly from the book because I think there's uh, the inspiration media section, which is often glossed over because people are like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't want to know what books and <laughs> movies you read recently. Um, but there's a couple sentences here that actually really summarize what you're talking about here, which is quote, 
Mummy the Curse can span several genres. You might want to tell a story inspired by 1920s pulp adventures or opt for a quieter game of self-discovery in a modern setting, unquote. And I feel like that's the hub of what you're talking about here is that because we have a small selection of core material to go from, you've expanded the concept. And as a result of that, a lot of people are coming at this from different perspectives. And some people want that 20s era of the, the horrible mummy unleashes a massive curse and people die in waves of locusts and whatnot. And some people want that kind of more time traveler's wife feeling of a very intimate personal conflict. And by presenting mm. both, mm -hmm. as long as they can sit side by side, it doesn't do any damage to look at both those options. If, if, but sometimes bringing in something to add alongside of it does damage the core. Sometimes you have to make decisions. It's like, if I add superpowers to this, the game becomes something else. And I can't see the game I want in there. Yeah, um, I think it's very similar to what we did with Exalted Essence, honestly, where mm -hmm. like it is it is more of a toolkit and a way to play Exalted, but it's not one way. It's like we we, we, we talk about in the storytelling section, you can use this to play intrigue, you can use it to play big action scenes, you can play whatever you want, whatever kind of game you're interested in. And I think we've even seen that in a lot of the one shots and stuff we've done, where like there was one we were at a party and we almost never used our powers and didn't really get in a fight. <laughs> and then there were a couple where we were just, you know, fighting everything that moved. Um, and I, I, I like games like that where like, it's kind of up to you to decide what you're going to be doing. Right. But you know, again, um, it comes down to these different styles. Like mm -hmm. you don't expect to play pick up. They came from classified, which is a game about 60s espionage games and expect to adequately play Avengers. No, but I do you know. expect a deep personal horror story that touches me and everybody around me when I play Glass of right. And actually, I, really, I said Avengers, <laughs> I meant Marvel's Avengers, because you actually can play. Yeah, because okay, you actually can play the like, M appeal, yeah. <laughs> right, so, so, so that was a bad example on my part. Um, but you're right, I mean, yeah, it's like some games, people do weirdly want them to be Swiss Army Knives, and unless the game is designed to be that, you can't really get that. No. Um, like, you can play a very intimate, small, street-level game in, like, say, Aberrant. There's room for that. Mm -hmm. But the game's basically about playing comic books. So it's, like, a, a large chunk of the game's going to do that. Um, so to Matthew's point, it's, like, he wanted... Sounds like you wanted the curse to shift to something that was more about exploring that timeless concept and the, the repercussions it has on both your character and the people around you who are obsessed with you. But Meteor Smiting isn't completely off the books? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, your cult may anger you. And, uh, <laughs> right, and what, better, yeah, what better way to send a lesson? I was in the middle of an excellent dream, and you just woke <laughs> me up, and now I'm not going to remember it. Uh, but the, what I can do right now is call down the sun. <laughs> There's a Meteor that uh, <laughs> literally has you bastards carved into it as it runs into you. <laughs> Um, so yeah, well, one more thing, we're getting close on time, but one more thing I did want to touch on, um, is, uh, in, the, in the section on creating timeless chronicles, um, there's some references to, uh, the pyramid and at first I was like pyramid, haha, because mummies. Um, but there's yeah. actually something else that's interesting there. Cause can one of you talk more about what the pyramid is in terms of creating chronicles for mummy? So the pyramid method of play is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the idea of uh, having a, a moret, a group, a gang of characters who are occupying different roles in the hierarchy. 
this, I think, originated in terms of role-playing, probably with Ars Magica or maybe Pendragon. Oh, right, uh, right. The idea of having hierarchical play in at your tabletop. And again, that's very much a down-to-player taste. Not everyone is good with that, but when it comes to sci-fi games like Star Trek, sometimes hierarchy is embedded in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the story mm-hmm. if you're on the bridge. Uh, but... Yeah, uh, the idea with pyramid play at its most basic is, let's say you've got a group of five players. One of them is the mummy. Two of them are special kinds of cultists. Let's say one's an immortal and one's a sorcerer. And the remaining two are mortal cultists who may have very disposable characters, red shirts, if you like. Mm -hmm. Now, what makes that, what can make that fun is, again, each time you travel to a different era, because memory isn't the most important thing, it may seem like it, but when a mummy wakes up, they do not remember, uh, that means anyone could be playing them. And so you can shift around the pyramid. You can make someone else play the mummy this time. You can make someone else play these other parts of the pyramid structure. And why that can be fun is because it threw, and this is where we kind of get a bit narrative gamey, uh, like Bluebeard's Bride, which we've mentioned very recently, mm-hmm. is that if everyone is having input into who this mummy was and is and will be, you create a very interesting tale, a, a picture of this mummy based on the way each character played them. If you go all the way through a chronicle and let's say everyone or most of the players at the table have each had a go at playing the mummy, you can then get together and providing they, the character hasn't been utterly uh, <laughs> utterly ruined by pull, being pulled off in five different directions, uh, the uh, which, which sounds far more obscene than uh, I intended. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not one to judge. The, the story you can make through resolution, through this with the storyteller, is you could go all the way back to IRM at that point to mm-hmm. the time before you got turned into an eternal deathless mummy, and you would know who the character was. You would know by the way they have acted in the preceding chronicles, by the way each person has portrayed them, the kinds of things that drive them, the kinds of things they're afraid of, the kinds of times they will sacrifice their followers and the times they will sacrifice themselves for their followers. And all of that, much more. And so it's a really challenging experience, I won't deny it. It requires, uh, again, a lot of investment. And the reason I mentioned investment before is because mummies can invest parts of themselves, their spirits, their Mm. shadow and so on, in their cultists to make them live longer and start channeling Mm. their powers. Um, So it requires investment from the players because this is major campaign level uh, of uh, player engagement, I would say, and storyteller engagement too. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the payoff for it can be huge in terms of player enjoyment. Uh, I I compare it to, I guess, two of the less popular, in terms of sales, games Mm -hmm. we work on, like Promethean and like Wraith the Oblivion. I love Promethean. Yeah. uh, uh, And (laughs) And, 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 and Wraith. 
Uh, and, you know, I think most people would say critically the two games are fantastic and then no one wants to play it with me. Well, I say to you this, listeners, if you feel that way, all you have to do is go on the Onyx Path Discord and say you are looking for a game. Uh, there have been people on the Discord or on forums f- since since they started who say, I would love to play Wraith, but I don't know who to play it with. Well, if all of you people who were saying that got together, you would have a group to play right. with. There you go. And uh, now is the time of the internet generation, so get playing with each other online. Indeed, it's, it's easier than ever to get together with, with people and, and play a game that you've always been wanting to try. Exactly. So that's that's it. That's uh, that's Mummy the Curse. Um, it is now available on DriveThruRPG, so feel free to pick it up. Um, speaking of things that are happening now, also, uh, we are in the middle of the Werewolf 20th Kickstarter for the Apocalyptic Record. What? Yeah. Um, and it is doing X amount of dollars right now, so we're very happy about that. Do we want to place bets? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> um, so, uh, Dixie, if people want to tell you what prize you won, where would they find you online? You can find me on the Discord, obviously, as I, like I just said, <laughs> often on the Onyx Passcast channel. I think I'm just Dixie Cyanide or Dixie Cochran on there. I don't know. It's my name. It's, it's a little icon. Uh, and if, it, if it says Dixie, it's probably her. Yeah, yeah. And it, and if it's green. Um, if the, the icon's green, says Dixie, probably me. Um, unless it's my friend Dixie, who also has green hair. <laughs> it is named Dixie. But that's a whole different thing. Anyway, uh, you can find me at Dixie Cyanide on pretty much all social media. Uh, so come say hi on Twitter. And Matthew? They can find me on Twitter at DawkinsMP. They can find me on the Onyx Path Discord. They can find me on MatthewDawkins.com and contact me through there with my prize. Um, and you can find me on uh, Twitter as at Pugsteady. Uh, you can find my website at Pugsteady.com. Uh, you can find me on the Discord probably complaining about the fact that Matthew has ruined my Netflix algorithm somehow and now is advertising Vincenzo to me for no identifiable reason. <laughs> really? Well, you should watch it and see what you think. Mine's been giving me Alice in Borderland. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I do have that effect. Some, somehow you've ruined it. So, um, may I uh, add uh, a coda? Yes. On the so, and so you'll be recommended this. I know we're way over time, so listeners, if you don't want to listen to me ranting about a movie, you may leave. What, Many what worlds, one podcast, and all that. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> I went to see a movie called Moonbound with my son at the cinema. Is it a kids' uh, movie? Uh, yeah. I uh, know. I don't blame you for never having heard of it. I've never heard of it. I had now. Don't ruin anything about its rating on Rotten Tomatoes because I hadn't checked before I went to see it. <laughs> now, this movie is a German movie. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. It was redubbed into English. It may rank, and bear in mind, we recently saw Spirit Untamed, uh, and so it had some <laughs> stiff competition. Uh, as the worst animated movie I have ever seen. Wow. Um, And not just due to shoddy animation or bad dialogue or anything like that. It was racist. (laughs) It was ableist. And and this is something that never bothers me in in general. It was blasphemous. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. Now I, I'm not. I, now I, I, I kind of want to watch it. Just make fun of it. So it was blasphemous in the sense that if it were an American animated movie, unless it's Angry Birds, you would never have a character saying "Oh my god" 
there is a character in Angry Birds that goes, it says, oh my God, a lot. But it's said in a very comedy way. In this, in a way that I can only describe as having been transliterated uh, and not questioned, the, char- the lead character, whenever he's frustrated, he's going, oh God, my God, he's punching the floor. It's like, damn you, God. And this is a- <laughs> God damn you! And and I can only think that because in Germany, "Mein Gott" is a fairly ubiquitous yeah, yeah, phrase, right. and and said offhand, much as it, "Oh God" or "Jesus," you know, yeah, yeah, is especially in England. But in American children's media, you don't get that so often. So I'm very used to hearing "heck" and "gosh" and "golly" uh, and from geez. yeah, geez, Louise. Uh, in in my animation, but that isn't what bothered me the most. Uh, other things that did, however, were <laughs> that the main character, who was an American boy, or at least voiced by an American, uh, uh-huh. ha- has a little sister who he has to follow up to the moon to save her. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Typical standard children's fare. His father died based before on, like the movie. a nineteen fifteen book. So yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's not an excuse. Uh, but his father died before the movie started, of course, because it's a children's movie and you always need one parent dead, otherwise it's not his. It yeah, yeah, yeah. And so his little sister has a vaguely German accent. And so I start thinking, okay. is this... So this movie that's been dubbed into English seems to have been dubbed by German actors speaking English in some cases. Again, fair enough. I'm not holding it against them other than for the inconsistency that some of the Americans in this speak with a German accent. And this isn't set in the Midwest. It's set in a nebulous part of America, I guess. Now, then they go up to the moon. They meet the Sandman, who speaks with a very strong German accent and has a sort of Kaiser Wilhelm wax mustache. And when they are embarking on a race around the Milky Way, which sounds better than it is, I promise you, against uh, the various nature spirits. For some reason, there are nature spirits that exist in space. Who knew? Uh, Such as the Storm God and the Hail King and the Rainmaker and things like that. Uh, they're, They're racing through the Milky Way to get an audience with the Night Fairy. Again, this sounds a lot better than it is. And... The um the main issue with the dialogue at that point is the that I I get the impression the people dubbing dubbed literally and never dubbed to footage. So it's a very fast cut action piece because they're racing and the Sandman has a chariot pulled by butterflies. It looks fantastic, but the camera's only on him for about three seconds before it goes to one of the other races, then another one, another one. And you have characters who start speaking, (laughs) and then they just kind of trail off into the audio in the background because it's suddenly gone to somebody else. And you just have this constantly throughout the movie, but no worse than there, that the people speaking English are speaking English more slowly than the German speakers were speaking German. So dialogue just stops halfway through a line, <laughs> or just, or you can just hear it muting, fading out, like we do our music at the beginning of our episode. <laughs> the, you know, the music will rise and the dialogue will go away. And then it will go to someone else, and then you'll come back to them, and they'll start saying something like, I don't think we're going to make it, we're going to... And... Oh God! And then you'll just get hit in the ear with an "Oh God" again. 
we we have a character being called a cripple, um, Great. which awesome. is about the only slur I will mention that arises in this. Um, because they use like the R word or anything. Um, luckily, I'm not not understanding what the R word is, which is probably a good thing. Ah, okay. Um, but I will probably know it and then uh, hit myself when I realize. But the um, the the worst thing which I can see what they were going for, is each of their nature spirits is is from a diverse background. The Storm okay. God, and you can probably see where this is going, the Storm God is, I would describe him as stereotypical African chief. The oh, Rainmaker okay. is stereotypical Indian with a turban and large mm. mustache. And then you have the less problematic Norse warrior and uh, Valkyrie and so on, and and nebulous Native American lightning <laughs> person. Now, the ones who suffer most <coughs> oh are, the, so are, the, are the Storm God and the Rainmaker, because the Storm God, and I'm not going to imitate it, I promise, uh, I, I wouldn't dare, is very much... And I'm not even going to say it in the same cadence, but I'll give you the the gist. I'm going to put you in a cauldron. I have a bone through my nose. Oh my god! Uh, yes, and the Indian fellow, uh, and here I am generalizing. He could be anywhere from South Asia. Um, it goes around calling characters in an accent that I can only assume is supposed to resemble. Apu from The Simpsons, which again isn't which a is fantastic also yeah, watermark. Goes <laughs> oh um, around calling characters my little popperdom. Oh my ma- no. My mango chutney. No. Yeah, and this is with an accent that I was I was actually sitting there echoing the main character's blasphemes, and my son was completely oblivious to it. But I whenever he spoke, I was just saying, Jesus Christ. <laughs> my God. Uh, yeah, my in this God. God damn this movie. And I just listened and I thought, this voice actor isn't going to be Indian, Bangladeshi or Pakistani, is he? And sure enough, and my son, when we got to the end of the movie, says, right, we're leaving. And I said, no, no, I'm going to stick around for the credits. (laughs) And sure enough, it's something like Matthew Albrecht. Now, I'm not going to um, assume someone's background based on their name. But I am assuming their background based on their name because both the accent and the name and the dialogue did not sing to me of any kind of authenticity. So we... Yeah, go ahead, sorry. Uh, no, no, I, I'm pretty much done. I okay. would not would not, re- <laughs> would not recommend except for Christmas viewing. I absolutely would say that um, I tried to look this up on IMDb and there are no actors listed on this movie on IMDb. <laughs> Uh, for either the German or the English version. There's just I don't no blame them. I don't uh, blame them. The director seems to be not not a white guy, though, and that's very interesting. Hmm. Um, either way, that's a, that's a whole lot. And uh, to put my final button on this before Eddie says his thing, um, the video game that I mentioned forever ago for the Atari that I played was called Dark Chambers. Because I, I had to look it up because I couldn't remember what it was called. Anyway, Eddie. And with that... <laughs> Many worlds, one path cast. My God. God damn. God. <laughs>